Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Loose Ends, the Singh Family Tragedy, has been created specifically for adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. There is graphic depiction of violence and murder, frank portrayal of sexuality, and at times excessive language. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are mine. Welcome to Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you for listening. This is Episode 1, Gratuitous Violence. Go ahead, Thank you. Police emergency. Yes, I've got three dead bodies in a bathtub. Do you need an ambulance? <laughs> <laughs> no, they're, they're on the floor. Okay, so how long have you been here, sir? <laughs> <laughs> okay, take a deep breath. On Tuesday, 22 April 2003, one of the most shocking crimes in Australian history was discovered at 20 Grass Tree Close, Bridgman Downs, Brisbane, Queensland. Three Singh children were brutally murdered in their home. Neilma was aged 24 years, Kunal aged 18 years, and Siddhi Singh aged just 12 years. The Singh family, of Fijian Indian descent, and consisting of parents Vijay and Shirley Singh, and their four children Sonia, Neilma, Kunal and Siddhi, had been living in Australia for just 12 years at this time. After a six-year investigation, Massimo, but better known as Max Seeker, was arrested and later convicted of the triple murders in what became Queensland's longest criminal trial. Seeker is currently serving a 35-year prison sentence. This podcast series will delve into the twists and turns, the anomalies, the brutality and the horrors of the murders that shocked Queensland. It makes no claim of Seeker's innocence but it will examine points that weren't raised at his trial. It will also present new evidence that, if true, directly challenges important aspects of the prosecution's circumstantial case. Loose ends that continue to linger. In this episode, we will cover an overview of the facts of the situation, eyewitness recollections and background information. But first we will start with details of the moments when the murder scene was discovered. Where I do not provide a witness's surname, it's for legal reasons. The following are extracts from part of the statement of one of the first police responders. These are her words, but not her voice. Upon arrival at the garage door, I noticed that there was both a brown wooden door and black fly screen attached to the door frame. I remember looking at both the screen door handle and the door jamb, 
and noticed no signs of forced entry. Constable G entered the garage door first. Upon entry to the garage, I noticed that the garage was quite dark. I do not recall smelling any foul odour at this point. I remember a kitchen on my right and that the floor was tiled. At this point, I remember hearing a low, vibrating hum and the sound of similar to running water coming from somewhere upstairs and to the right of the house. We walked through to a foyer area. The house was very dark and the curtains were drawn in both of these rooms. There were no lights on in these rooms. There was a pungent, sweet smell coming from somewhere upstairs. Constable G proceeded up the stairs, followed by myself. I recall that the carpets were cream in colour and that the stairwell was quite dim. We got to the landing and I stopped to survey the room in front of me. The first thing I noticed was a large dark brown trail to my front on the cream carpet. I thought this trail could possibly be due to blood or faeces. There were also several clumps of black hair on the carpet to my front left. The room furthest from me to my right and closest to the front of the house looked like a bedroom. It contained a bed, however, there was no bed linen on the bed. I could see objects on the floor next to the bed. The dark brown trail was a mainly continuous line that looked as if objects had been dragged. It comprised several parts, a larger central stain and several smaller streaks on either side. They were dry at that time. The trail extended from the bedroom doorway situated on the upstairs front of the house across the landing and led into a large double door entrance adjacent to the top of the stairs. It appeared as if this doorway led into another bedroom. The room was quite dim due to the drawn curtains. I began to walk toward the open double doors which appeared to lead into the master bedroom. I also recall that the pungent, sweet smell was very strong and the vibrating, gurgling noise was quite loud. Constable G walked forward first and entered the bathroom and I followed him in. The landing area was quite warm, almost humid and quite stuffy as the windows were all shut. As I entered the bathroom, I noticed that it was quite dim due to the blinds being closed. I looked to the left and saw what I thought was two bodies in the spa bath. I recalled that the spa was running and that the watermark was about two inches from the lip of the bath. The water was quite murky in colour and there was a film of white froth on the surface of the water closer to the edge of the bath. The bathroom was very warm similar to that of a bathroom after having a hot shower. I noticed that there was dark bedding on the right-hand side of the spa, which spilled onto the floor. I recall that there was bedding intertwined with the bodies in the spa bath. I recall hearing Constable G confirm on the police radio that there were dead bodies in the bathroom, or words to that effect. The officer later recalled that when she walked into the bathroom, time stood still. This is an extremely tragic story. I doubt there would be anyone who was living in South East Queensland in 2003. Perhaps even Queensland, who was not aware of these murders. Three young members of the one family brutally killed their own home and dumped in a hot spa tub. I was living in Brisbane at the time of this crime. I was aware of the matters, obviously, but never knew all of the details until now. 
My knowledge was limited to what most people knew, what we saw or read in the media. I remember the only apparent suspect, Max Seeker, calling on the Queensland police to arrest him so he could clear his name. I remember reading as the trial progressed and watching news updates on television. I remember his conviction and sentencing to 35 years imprisonment. To explain, this played out over nine years. From the murders to Max Seeker's arrest was over five years. And then a further almost four years to the trial verdict. It was sometimes months and occasionally a year or more between media articles regarding the story. I have never met Max Seeker, but I feel like I know him. His father, Carlo, has operated pizza restaurants for many years in the northern and western suburbs of Brisbane, and we have dined in them on occasions over the years. There was a woman singing in the restaurant on one occasion who I believe may have been the sister of Max Seeker. As fate would have it, I had also met the surviving Singh sibling, Sonia Patik. Sonia and I both worked at the same company for a time. I cannot begin to even imagine what the surviving members of the Singh family went through for days, weeks, months, years, and even today after the passing of their loved ones. The surviving sibling, Sonia Patik, sadly passed away from a brain aneurysm in 2020, aged 42 years. I wonder if the tragic events of 2003 somehow contributed to her death. The parents, Vijay Singh and Shirley Singh, are still alive as at 2021, and no doubt continue to suffer the loss of their children. In cases like this, no one wants to know about the offender or their family, but I have been told that Max Seeker's family also suffer nightmares on a regular basis. They believe their son to be innocent. So here we are, loose ends. For those of you who have listened to the podcast Who Killed Leanne Holland or Beenham Valley Road, Jamie Pultz will be well known to you as a podcaster. I recently caught up with Jamie. Jamie, how are you? Mate, I'm very good, Graham, and how about yourself? Yes, very well, thanks, mate. That's been good. a while since we've caught up. Yeah, well, I've been busy with life and kids and, you know, my other podcasts, and you've been busy getting your head around, sinking your teeth into this case. Before we jump in, I'd just like to say I'm dedicating this podcast to the memory of those seeing children. Yep. I'm also dedicating the podcast to first responders, police, ambos, fire and rescue. We've both been first responders, as you know. Yep. When first responders sign on at the start of their shift, they have no idea what they will confront during that day. But no one could expect the brutality, the senselessness of the scene that confronted the first responders on Tuesday, 22 April 2003. We know how hard it can be, Jamie. Some things just cannot be unseen. And I honestly and genuinely worry about the mental health of first responders, and I hope that necessary attention is being paid to their mental health. But you have been talking about that very subject in the current podcast, Jamie, right? Yeah, correct, mate. Can you tell me about that? I'm yet to listen to it. Yeah, so it's called Tear It Down, and basically through Beenham Valley Road, the, my first podcast, I did a bonus episode with my co-host Tom Daunt about our own mental health struggles because we've had friends, or I had a close friend who was going through something at the time, so we did a bit of a tribute to them. And the response was absolutely amazing and people were messaging us and, and to this day that it's probably one of the most commented on episode of that whole series and people really appreciated it. It hit a chord with them. It resonated with them. They were glad not to be alone in their own feelings of those similar issues. So. It gave me the 
idea to do a podcast solely based on that, you know, to speak to people who have had these issues, no matter what they are, from bipolar to PTSD to depression, uh, you name it, but they've come out the other side and they learn how to cope with it, how to live with it, or just keep going. So that's the whole premise of that, and that's called Tear It Down. Congratulations. How's that been received, mate? Been received really well. People genuinely... Uh, like to hear from people who have issues and, and are vulnerable enough to speak about it openly. All right, Jamie, good catching up. Yeah, and, good uh, catching up with you, Graham, and uh, thank you for pursuing another case, and I'm sure it's going to be great, and I hope you bring some light to the to the victims. Mate, there's, uh, there's a lot of surprises in store in this podcast. I can tell you there's stuff coming right out of left field, particularly in episode six, so um, stay tuned. I will be indeed. All right, well, thanks, Graham. Thank you, Jamie. Nice talking to you. All right. Nice talking to you too, mate. Bye-bye. Bye. To people living in Brisbane, Bridgman Downs will be known to them, at least the basics anyway. With our previous podcast, we have found that around 20% of our listeners reside overseas, so I'll give you some basic information on the location of this crime. Brisbane is Queensland's capital, and Bridgman Downs is located 13 kilometres to the northwest of the Central Business District. The suburb has long been associated with acreage properties on the outskirts of Brisbane, but with suburban creep, acreage properties have been disappearing and residential estates taking their place. It has long been described as a desirable suburb and associated with wealth and prestige. What does a typical home in Bridgman Downs look like? Large, two-storey, brick, double garage or more, many with a swimming pool, some with a tennis court, manicured lawns, a home for families with children. You are more likely to see a late model BMW or Mercedes in the driveway than an old model Holden or Falcon. If there is an old car on the street, it probably has P-plates on it and being driven by one of the children. Bridgman Downs was, and is, an affluent suburb. As at 2011, there were around 8,000 people living in the suburb. I used to live not far from Bridgman Downs and drove through the suburb on a regular basis. The homes were large, impressive. Some of the homes I would describe as ostentatious, but many were and are just exceptionally large, beautiful homes. I used to think of Bridgman Downs as a large hole in the ground filled up with money. Like most other suburbs in Brisbane, there was occasional crime in Bridgman Downs mostly relating to breaking and entering offences, domestic disturbances and drug offences. There was rarely murder and certainly not multiple murders. The suburb could be readily described as a safe, happy area to live and bring up a family. That changed in April 2003. The residents of Bridgman Downs must have been beside themselves when they learned a brutal triple murder had occurred in their neighbourhood. A few weeks after the crime... A meeting was held in a local hall attended by senior police and many concerned and disturbed residents in an effort to quell concerns and fears. It would be a long time before residents learned the murders were a targeted attack and not random killings. Max Seeker, boyfriend of Neil Masing, and in a volatile on-again, off-again relationship with her, called emergency services at 2.33pm on that Tuesday to say he had found the bodies of Neil McCunnell and Siddy in a spa bath in the family home. The parents, Vijay and Shirley, were in Fiji at the time. April 22, 2003. 
And there's Max Seeker on the Sings front lawn, claiming he stumbled upon one of Brisbane's most shocking crimes. He called, he called, nobody was answering. So, uh, yeah, I think it, the door was open. So he went upstairs and it's all bloody, full of blood. The bodies of Neilma, Kunal and Siddhi Singh were found in an overflowing bathtub in their Bridgman Downs home. Their parents, Vijay and Shirley, were holidaying in Fiji at the time. They came home to an unimaginable tragedy. And whoever touched my children was a damn coward. I would say a real damn coward. <laughs> Where the siblings were found has become a shrine, their bedrooms virtually untouched. Photos and home videos keep their memory alive. Several police, scientific officers and ambulance officers entered the crime scene that day. As is to be expected with eyewitnesses, their recollections of what they saw varied, and nothing untoward should be read into that. Eyewitnesses will vary on their recollection, particularly of traumatic events. It is well documented that people who receive a shock or traumatic incident have diminished memory. Witnesses recalled water dripping from the ceiling of the first floor onto the ground floor of the home. Others did not. Only a few observed a bottle of bleach in the ground floor laundry with blood on it. A beige-coloured carpet covered the floor and stairs of the house. An impression in the carpet at the base of the stairs to the first floor and on the first step of the stairs was seen by some persons entering the house, but not others. The impression was seemingly made by a human foot. These impressions, in a decidedly yellow colour and much lighter than the brownish carpet, were to become crucial as the investigation progressed. Some witnesses saw one clump of hair on the floor at the top of the stairs. Some saw two clumps. Some saw none. All saw trails of a dark brown stain on the upstairs carpet, consistent with something having been dragged from two of the bedrooms through the master bedroom to the ensuite bathroom. Most witnesses who entered the ensuite saw only two bodies in the spa, with the leg of the third victim only becoming visible with the lifting of a pillow at the end of the spa. Hand towels may have previously covered the faces of Neilma and Siddy, but had moved with the agitation of the water caused by the spa pump. All witnesses saw a large pile of sodden bedding on the floor of the ensuite and at the base of the spa as well as other bedding still in the spa with the bodies. Most police reported Neilma as wearing a T-shirt that was pulled up, exposing her breast, when they observed her body in the spa. Another officer recorded she was naked when her body was removed from the spa. For the record, Neilma was wearing a T-shirt when her body was taken out. At the time of attendance by first responders, the spa jets were operating. Max Seeker later told police he turned the hot water tap off when he first entered the room as water was pouring over the edge onto the floor and obviously had been for a prolonged period. It was the only tap running, he said. At 6.22pm, a thermometer showed the spa water temperature to be 32 degrees centigrade or 90 degrees Fahrenheit. How hot is 32 degrees? Water at 32 degrees is considered at the top end of warm and the bottom end of hot. Scientific police reported seeing bloodstains on the ground floor living area, on the painted timber posts adjacent to the centre landing staircase, and on the wall on the right-hand side at the top of the stairs. This was later found to be Neilma's blood. The mattress in Cunell's bedroom was bare and no bedding was present. 
There were bloodstains on the door, mattress, bed frame and carpet. The mattress in Neilma's room was bare and no bedding present. There was also a large pool of blood on the carpet next to the bed. There was an open jewellery box. Jewellery was missing. There were two pillows and a bloodstained pair of sandals between the bed and the built-in robe. Sandals belonging to Vijay Singh, the father. A yellow cup was on the floor. Again, there were bloodstains around the room including the light switch. Neilma's blood. The master bed still had a fitted sheet on it with blood staining. Once the bodies and the remaining bedding were removed from the spa, further items were recovered from the water, including a maroon jumper and an empty radox box of bath salt. The prosecution alleges after an argument, Seeker strangled his 24-year-old ex-girlfriend Neelma Singh, then repeatedly struck her with the prongs of a garden fork before her body was dumped in the bath. Her two siblings, who were the only potential witnesses, were then killed. 18-year-old Kanal Singh was also hit with the fork before he was drowned, while 12-year-old Siddhi Singh died from injuries sustained by the fork. The prosecution says Max Seeker was distraught on the day the bodies were discovered and that he told police it was because he'd found the three dead. But the court heard Seeker's distress was nothing more, nothing less than a sham. It was a lie because it was he that killed them and then came back more than a day later to pretend to discover the bodies. The house and grounds were thoroughly searched, of course, as part of the intense police investigation. Police and SES searched roadways, pathways and parks throughout Bridgman Downs. Two weeks after the crime, a garden fork was found in the garage of the murder house standing up behind the barbecue. No one could say why it took two weeks to find the fork in the garage. It was found to contain blood from all three victims. It was considered most likely to be the murder weapon, but there were alternatives. Just to confuse matters, the carpet square the fork was standing on contained two separate samples of DNA, which were eventually linked to two friends of Cannell, who had last been in the house 12 months before. There had been no attempt to clean the bloody mess in the upstairs section of the house at all. The downstairs living area was a different story. A bottle of bleach with Neilma's blood on it was in the laundry. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was concluded that a one square meter section of tiles near the stairs had been wiped with bleach. It is known that bleach removes evidence of blood. When Vijay and Shirley Singh were shown through the house for the first time after arriving home from Fiji, they were both adamant they had not purchased that bottle of bleach. It was a different brand to the bleach they normally purchased. When that bleach was used, it gave off a smell they did not like. They had a routine whereby they always topped up household supplies at the same time, from the same shop, and buying the same brand. When they left for Fiji, there was a full two-litre bottle of their regular bleach in the laundry. It was later found to be still there. However, at trial nine years later, BJ gave evidence that he purchased the bleach found on the floor. 
They also noted a mop out of position in the garage that had been wrung out and appeared to have been used. Bleach was detected in the mop, and a blue bucket in the laundry did not belong to them. The sheer complexity of this investigation was unprecedented in my experience. It took eight months of research and analysis of the evidence before I felt competent to broadcast the story. The police investigation continued for almost six years before the arrest, and no doubt continued right up to the trial and beyond. Information from the public, along with police investigations, resulted in around 1,800 job logs being generated. To explain, each aspect of an investigation results in a job log being issued. For example, a job log may read, Interview all neighbours in the vicinity of 20 grass tree close. And I am confident such a job log was generated, even though I have not had access to the job logs or the investigation running sheet. And experienced officers are detailed with reviewing the job logs to ensure that all matters detailed have been actioned fully and properly, that no aspect of the investigation has been missed or overlooked. Mistakes are made. People get lazy. Things are missed. But with checks and balances in place, all bases are covered. A tried and proven system. In late March 2004, approaching the first anniversary of the murders, detectives were instructed to door knock residents in the vicinity of the Seeker family home in Stafford Heights. As Max Seeker had been the prime and only suspect for the same period of time, I can find no commentary or explanation why that job log took 12 months to be generated. I would have expected Queensland Police would have been very keen to find people who could provide information about Max Seeker's movements as soon as possible. As a result of that instruction, the next-door neighbours to the Seekers was interviewed, known as Lisa L. The actioning of that particular job log and subsequent events in relation to it take on special significance and are discussed in detail later in the podcast. Over 1,070 written statements were taken. Around 1,600 crime scene photos were taken. As well as inquiries throughout Queensland and New South Wales, Police travelled to Fiji on two occasions to conduct investigations. No investigations were made in the Solomon Islands. And as you will discover later in the podcast, the Solomon Islands plays an important part in this investigation. The Solomon Islands and the events that occurred there were seemingly not on the Queensland Police radar at that time or not considered relevant to these murders. But as nothing was ever disclosed, particularly to the defence, I am opting with the former. The events that occurred in the Solomon Islands were unknown to police then or later. The judicial system in Australia is a complicated and expensive process. There are several steps involved once the process starts, and steps do vary depending on the nature of the charges. In this instance, the process starts with the arrest of the suspect, Max Seeker. The defendant then appeared in the magistrate's court, where a date was set for a committal proceedings. No pleadings are taken at this time. By that I mean the accused is not asked whether he is innocent or guilty. Bail was denied and Max Seeker was held in custody pending trial. A later bail application in the Supreme Court was refused. The committal proceedings are held before a magistrate. The magistrate determines whether there is sufficient evidence for the accused to stand trial in the higher court. This prevents frivolous or vexatious matters clogging up the court system as well as saving people the considerable expense that a trial incurs. An accused can bypass a committal hearing and elect to have the matter proceed directly to the court of jurisdiction. 
Other accused want the evidence tested to determine the strengths and weaknesses of the police case. On occasions, a magistrate will determine there is not sufficient evidence to prosecute and will discharge the defendant. As this was a circumstantial case, and without speaking to the defence barrister, I'm guessing the aim was to have the matter discharged before it went to trial. In the Seeker case, after 90 sitting days extending over more than a year, the magistrate committed Max Seeker to stand trial in the Brisbane Supreme Court on all three murder charges. The committal proceedings generated over 10,000 pages of evidence. After his committal, Max Seeker's solicitor made an application for a judge-only trial. The argument was that because of the media storm surrounding the murders and Max Seeker being continually in the epicentre of the storm, it would be difficult to find a jury of 12 people who would not have a bias on the matter. The application was refused. The next step is a trial and depending on the outcome, sentencing and a possible appeals court applications. The trial, which commenced on 31 January 2012, almost nine years after the crime, lasted 77 sitting days and generated over 8,000 pages of evidence. More than 600 people were called up for jury duty, from which 12 jurors were selected, along with reserves. The initial witness list of over 800 names was eventually whittled down to around 90 persons who actually gave evidence. Court exhibits numbered more than 520. The judges summing up to the jury lasted four hours and consisted of an eye-watering 275 pages. In total, there was around 300,000 words generated, including the statements, interviews, recordings, and evidence in court. 352 fingerprint impressions found at various crime scenes and in vehicles were compared against 329 persons, including 83 police. Not all fingerprints found were eliminated. At least two remain outstanding to this day. Face and ear impressions were found at the scene that were never eliminated. Detectives engaged the builder of the house at 20 Grass Tree Close to build a replica staircase to enable tests to be conducted in relation to bleach-soaked foot impressions on carpet. Carpet identical to that installed in the house was sourced. 3,200 foot impressions were obtained from 1,600 people. Max Seeker wore a size 12 shoe. Of the 3,200 impressions taken, 400 were of size 12 feet. Police spent an entire month conducting tests of the spa to obtain temperature data of the water, with various scenarios enacted. The results of those tests were never disclosed, which can only mean they did not support the police case. In the early days after the killings, over 110 investigators, uniformed police, forensic officers and others were involved. At the time of the trial, there were around 4,000 hits on the internet relating to this matter. It became Queensland's longest criminal trial. Yet remarkably, by the time the trial started, there was no direct evidence to connect Max Seeker with the crime scene or the murders. Just a series of circumstances and an alleged confession to a friend, which can only be described as sketchy, which is a contradiction in itself. There is a well-known principle within law enforcement. It is the Lockhart Exchange Principle. Lockhart's Exchange Principle states that with contact between two items, there will be an exchange of microscopic material. This certainly includes fibres, but can extend to other microscopic materials such as hair, pollen, paint and soil. In forensic science, 
Lockhart's exchange principle holds that the perpetrator of a crime will bring something to the crime scene and leave with something from the crime scene. If you'd like to learn more about Lockhart's exchange principle, there are many pages on the internet. There is a link to the Wikipedia page regarding Lockhart's exchange principle in the show notes at the end of this episode. And I cover the principle in relation to this crime in depth in a later episode. Good evening. Max Seeker will be locked up for at least 35 years. He'll be 73 before he's even eligible for parole after a judge handed down a record jail term for murdering the Sings. Ursula Hager was in court for the sentencing. And Ursula, what has been the reaction to Seeker's punishment? Yes, throughout much of the four-hour sentencing, Max Seeker sat with his hands clasped and his eyes closed. He didn't say anything as the judge handed down his sentence, 35 years the longest in Queensland's history without parole. In his sentencing remarks, Justice John Byrne said he had taken into account the many false accusations Max Seeker had made against the Singh parents, VJ in particular, and described the crimes as brutal and horrific. The easy way to do this podcast would have been to simply regurgitate the Crown case, the defence case and the judge's summary. But as most people know, a criminal trial is not about identifying the killer. A trial is about determining whether the accused is guilty or innocent of the charge levelled against him or her. And that determination is made by the prosecutor persuading the jury that the accused is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. To that end, the Crown will only call evidence that supports their argument. Evidence that did not fit the Crown narrative was not raised by the Crown, unless the defence knew about it and insisted on it being raised, which they did. And with some diligence, I thought. But the sheer volume of evidence meant that defence could not and did not investigate every single little snippet of information provided by all persons interviewed. And more importantly, The defence team are barristers and lawyers, not investigators. That left the only option for me to trawl through all 1,070 statements, 1,600 photographs, the trial transcript, the committal transcript and other evidence, as well as make my own inquiries. So this podcast is a mix of the evidence heard at trial, evidence gleaned from all persons interviewed but not heard at trial, and other matters I found myself. A heady mix. And for the record, I have no vested interest in this case. My aim is not to prove guilt or innocence on the part of Max Seeker, or anyone else for that matter. My aim is to tell the whole story, to provide you, the listening community, with all the facts and circumstances of the case. You will hear evidence pointing to Max Seeker as being the killer and you will hear evidence excluding him from involvement in the crime. And I can tell you there are surprises in store on both sides of that argument. I can also comment that after reading the entire file, I formed the conscious decision that I would not believe anything Max Seeker said, claimed to have said, did, or claimed to have done without independent corroboration of the claim. He was a liar, and lied continuously. Does that mean he is a killer? I want to explore that. And I must add that as my investigations continued, I decided to use that same benchmark against other witnesses as well. I don't think Max Seeker was the only one telling lies in this mess. 
With such an enormous amount of material to work through, it is possible I have made errors in preparing the podcast. If you are familiar with the evidence and identify a mistake, please tell me. If I have made an error, it was accidental. I will happily amend the mistake. I would have preferred not to go into the level of detail necessary to describe the killings, but I felt it critical to understanding this terrible crime. And as you are probably beginning to understand, the brutality and ferocity was enormous. Matters I raised later in the podcast necessitated me going into considerable detail with the killings. I suspect students of criminology, sociology, social sciences and policing will be discussing and studying this case for many years, or perhaps decades, to come. Hopefully, if we as a society can learn something from this horrible mess, it may help make up for the embarrassment and grief her family has been put through. Thank you for listening to Gratuitous Violence. Please join me in Episode 2, Troubled Families, where I background the Singh family and the Seeker family. You will hear how, in the months prior to her death, Ilma was very embarrassed after naked photographs of her circulated among family and friends via email. Imagine how embarrassed she would have been by all the facts of her short life, as told in the trial of Max Seeker and repeated by the media. I will also take you on a virtual trip to Fiji and Solomon Islands, as both countries play an integral part in this investigation. Startling information becomes known regarding occupants of both countries and their possible connection to these murders. Information which was not raised at trial. And some of the information appears not to be even known to Queensland Police to this day. Thanks very much for listening. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like it, recommend it to others. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the following. The Facebook page is Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends2003 at outlook.com. That's looseends2003 at outlook.com. The website is via the ACAST webpage. That's www.shows.acast.com forward slash loose dash ends. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Appreciation to Basim Nima for editing and production. Music before I go by Arkham. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. AVC. Media clips courtesy of channels 7, 9, and 10. You will find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks again for listening.